Hi there, you're listening to the First Baptist Church of Oregon City podcast. I'm Pastor John Witham. This sermon, Power Struggles, is from 15 March 2020. The scripture is Luke 11, 14 through 28. It is the third of our sermons for the Lenten season. Thank you for listening, and may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. For five years, from 2014 to 2019, I had a great part-time job. I was a recess supervisor at an elementary school in Aurora, Illinois. Yes, I was the one who was tasked with making sure that all of the rules were followed and that everybody stayed safe and that we played nice with each other. But it also meant that nearly every day I got to play tag, I got to swing on swings, I got to go down the, the twisty slide. Um, it, was, it was a whole lot of fun, most days, most days. One thing I had to learn very quickly, though, in early on, was don't get into an argument with little kids. It, it, was a very, it was a very quick and brutal education. Because here's the thing about kids. We as adults think things, and we know the difference between the things that you get to say out loud in polite society and the things that you kind of keep to yourself and like mutter in the car ride home. But little kids don't know that. And they will say the first thing that comes into their head, and somehow they know like the precise thing that you are insecure about, that your, your, your greatest weakness, they know it, and they go right for it. I don't think it's, I don't think they're, I mean, some of them are a little you know, vicious, but I don't think most of them know what they're doing, but they do it, and they just go right for the throat. And so you learn, I learned really early on, don't make it a power struggle. Don't make it something where it's me against them. There are times, yes, when I, I would kneel down and look them in the eye and, and we would have conversations and, uh, and it would be nice. But when it came right down to it, I was the adult, they were the kids, and there were times that I just needed to make sure they were put in their proper place. I mean, that didn't mean that they didn't go ahead and say the things that I was insecure about. They would do that no matter what. <laughs> when we look at this passage today, we see Jesus doing a fairly normal thing. Uh, he's driving out a demon. We also find out from the passage that Jesus isn't the only guy who's going around driving out demons there were many exorcists in that day. There's a temptation in our modern Western world to, to kind of write out this, this sort of thing as a health problem or a mental illness or, or to, to give it a, a, quote, rational, logical explanation but we can't do that here. Yes, it may have been 
this, this person who was unable to speak may truly have had some sort of mental problem, difficulty, um, disorder, whatever you want to call it, that led to muteness. But we don't know what had been the precipitating factor of that difficulty. Because we live in a broken world. We live in a world where there is the distinct power of darkness present. That power of darkness, at least for the Jews in, in Jesus' time, was sometimes called the Satan, the accuser. When we hear Satan, that's a complicated word in our world and a complicated idea for followers of Jesus because Satan has been kind of given this mythic status in our, in our minds. We think of in, in Looney Tunes when Bugs Bunny is trying to decide whether he should, you know, I don't know, hit Elmer Fudd over the head with a giant mallet and there's a little angel on one shoulder telling him, don't do it. And there's a little devil, you know, and it's always somebody in red and has horns and is, you know, has a forked tail and says, do it, do it. And, and eventually, Bugs Bunny goes, I do's it, and smacks Elmer Fudd over the head. That's just how it goes. And then we, you can go to art museums and you can see all of this great, medieval renaissance art where there are depictions of Satan and it's usually kind of a squirrely looking guy or a terrifying looking guy uh, in all in red, you know, with these big beefy muscles. And that's part of our imagination about Satan. One of my seminary professors went to a, uh, a church in Germany that had a gargoyle of a demon and the demon had his fingers and his ears and his eyes closed and his tongue sticking out and was relieving himself because he was terrified of the power of Christ. This also is part of our imagination of Satan. But Jesus deals with Satan differently. And I think the nature of how we need to understand Satan to be able to understand this this story has to change a little bit. Paul, the, the apostle who wrote you know, roughly half of the New Testament, says in Ephesians chapter 6 that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against powers and principalities and against this present darkness. And this is a great way of kind of re-envisioning evil in our world. There's four things that I want to point out before we go on that Satan cannot do. One, Satan can't read your mind. He doesn't have access. He's never been given the, the code to the vault, the, the keys to the storage cabinet of your brain. Sometimes I feel like mine is that leaky storage cabinet that's got a drip in it and has a little mold in the corner. <laughs> he doesn't have access. That's not part of, of his thing. One thing, another thing, 
we cannot allow Satan to be considered as God's equal. This isn't a, a heavyweight champion title bout between God and Satan. It's not even close. God has all power and all dominion and all authority over things seen and unseen. And that includes Satan. Jesus says to Peter, Peter declares Jesus as Lord, the Messiah, and then Peter, say, Peter says, or Jesus says, you know, they're, they're going to kill me and it's going to be terrible. And Peter says, I won't let that happen. And, and uh, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And he says, Satan has in fact asked to sift you like wheat, Peter. Is God has control of Satan. It's not a battle of equals. Satan cannot force us to sin. Yes, he can set all of the, the right things up for us to sin. He can whisper lies in our ears for us to believe. But bad news, folks. We're the ones who do bad all on our own. And Satan cannot pass ultimate judgment on us. That's maybe the best news. The ultimate judge is God. And standing at the right hand of God is Jesus, who says, that person is covered by me. No matter what Satan tries to tell us about ourselves, he doesn't have the authority to pass judgment on us. Biblical scholar N.T. Wright tells us that Satan is like an overzealous prosecutor who likes his job a little too much. And he went on to say that, uh, that Satan is in this, this role as prosecutor, likes to prosecute so much that he tries to get people to do things that he can then prosecute. So this is an image of what we're dealing with. We're dealing today in this passage with the very real power of evil that seeks to destroy life on earth. Because life is God's thing. God created life. God breathes life into everything. And if there's anything that is good, if there is anything beautiful, if there is anything in this world that is truly enjoyable, for goodness' sake, it's from God. So when Jesus is accused of being one of the devil's minions, the, one of the agents of this darkness, of course it can't work that way. If the darkness can't produce life, if the darkness can't bring life into the world, why would it then allow people to be freed from demonic activity? It makes no sense, and Jesus points this out. The kingdom Jesus is announcing does not suffer these struggles with the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom that Jesus announced is announcing at that time had not been fully brought into power 
but through the cross and the resurrection will be brought fully into power. But at this point, it's growing. Jesus doesn't suffer the battle of his authority versus the powers of darkness as authority. Scriptural commentator Justo Gonzalez says, evil is real, evil is powerful, evil is organized in its own mysterious ways, but Jesus doesn't enter into a power struggle with this. He says one of two things is possible. Either all of us who are casting out demons are frauds, or that it is by the power of God that I do these things, and that means that the kingdom has come. When the authority of Jesus goes up against the power of darkness, the powers of darkness lose every time. There's no struggle. Jesus doesn't permit it. He shuts it down right then and there. He's defeated the demon. He's refused to give an answer to the people who want a sign. And he says, I can't be a part of the darkness because I'm bringing life. Jesus won't enter into the struggle between his lordship and empty idolatry. He tells this weird story about when a, when a demon is driven out of its home, it goes around and it goes to all these dry places and wanders around and says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go back to where I was and see if I can, can make my home there again. And he, he gathers up seven more demons and he goes back and he finds everything put in order. But what doesn't he find in that house, in this proverbial house? He doesn't find life. He doesn't find people living. And this is a sign, by the way, that our day-to-day lives are good and are blessed by God our day-to-day lives that involve cooking and cleaning and brushing our teeth and going to work and coming home from work and brewing coffee and drinking coffee and enjoying coffee. I love coffee. And that is all good. And that's not found in this proverbial house when he goes back. There's not a good life being lived in the ways of Jesus when this demon comes back. And so they wreck the place, like Motley Crue in the 80s, and have a party. And it's worth thinking about, because in Jesus' day, there were a lot of reform movements. There were a lot of movements to try to reform the, the church, or reform, reform God's people, reform the temple, uh, to take it back to its past glory as it was with King David. And to some extent, they had done a really good job. People were very interested in looking for the Messiah. People were very interested in, uh, in their faith as, as God's people, uh, Israel. And that was good. But they weren't recognizing Jesus, when he showed up. 
they had created an empty house that could then just be taken over by whatever came along. Do we do that today sometimes? Do we sometimes see the error of our ways and yes, go so far as to to correct it, but then do we allow something else to come in in its place? Do we allow fear to enter the place of that Jesus should hold? Do we allow hatred, bigotry to take root where Jesus should have life? I think it happens. We cannot, the lordship of Christ does not get along with idolatry. It does not bow to anything else. And so when we, when we have the house cleaned out, we have to make sure that Jesus is Lord and nothing else is Lord. The last battle that's not really a power struggle is true discipleship versus lip service. A woman shows up and shouts something very nice, very complimentary, and and very, very lovely at Jesus. That his mom is pretty blessed for having a kid like him. I think my mom probably feels that way every day of her life. But, (laughs) who knows? (laughs) But, Jesus says, yeah, that's good, but it's better if you actually follow me. It's easy to pay lip service to Jesus. It's easy to say good things about Jesus. Lots of people like Jesus. They like the sort of things that he says. But they don't like other things. They don't like the whole, like, I'm going to die, take up your cross and follow me. That part's hard, so we don't like to pay attention to it. The whole I'm the son of God thing. And it's easy to talk about Jesus as a, as a good moral teacher. But this isn't what discipleship is. This is. Discipleship is following the ways of Jesus. It's following the Jesus who chose the cross. It's following Jesus who could have walked away. Got off scot-free. But he didn't. It's following the Jesus who chose to die rather than kill his enemies. It's Jesus who chose the appearance and the actual defeat in exchange for resurrection. And while true discipleship is always more fulfilling than lip service, While true discipleship, hearing Jesus' words and doing what he says, 
leads to a much richer and more beautiful life. Lip service is easy. Too easy. And this is our power struggle. It wasn't a power struggle for Jesus. Jesus knew who he was. He knew who he belonged to. And he knew what his mission was. So for Jesus, accepting his authority, living out his lordship and living as disciples, that that wasn't an issue. But are we going to allow Jesus to strengthen us? Are we going to take Jesus' victory and this determined resolve that Jesus had not to make this a power struggle? Are we going to live that out in our lives? Because sometimes we feel like we're in bondage to this, don't we? I want to go back to one line that Jesus said. If I am casting out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom has arrived among you. That's 11 verse 20. When Moses and Aaron were standing in Pharaoh's court, demanding that Pharaoh let God's people go, They did signs and wonders from God that God told them to do. They threw their staff on the ground and it turned into a snake. They touched the waters of the Nile River with their staff and it it went to blood. And for a while, Pharaoh's court wizards were able to replicate every sign that Moses and Aaron did until one gnats. They couldn't make the sand turn to gnats. And when they went back and reported it to Pharaoh, they said, this is the finger of God. And I think Jesus used that language intentionally. And I'll submit to you that I think he meant for us to think about the end as well. Because at the end of the signs and wonders that broke the back of Pharaoh, God's people were set free. And at the end of Jesus' trip to Jerusalem, God's people, the whole world, would be set free. It would come at a cost for Jesus. But Jesus sets the way for us to be free from the power of darkness in this world and sets us up for victory. Amen.